0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark is opening up with a story that seems to me a little bit odd. He begins with just giving us a time marker. He says, on the following day, this is his way of helping us stay on track as we go through this final week of Jesus' life. The last time we were here in Mark, of course, was at the beginning of chapter 11, as Mark is taking us into this final week. This is what we would refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and on, in that story, as they're walking into the city, Jesus sends a few of his disciples on ahead to the next village where he tells them very specifically there will be a colt on which no one has ever sat before. There's, he tells them where it is, he tells them what to do, go get it and bring it back, and he even tells them what to say in case someone asks them, hey, what are you doing with the colt? Why are you taking it? He says, well, just tell them that the Lord has need of it and he'll bring it back. So when they get back with the cult, all that happens just as Jesus predicts. When they get back with the cult, the disciples put their cloaks on it, and, and Jesus rides into town specifically, if you'll recall, into the temple complex while the disciples and the crowds around them begin to shout these messianic slogans, Hosanna, blessed is the, the coming of the, of the son of David, all this stuff, Hosanna in the highest, these messianic slogans, they're shouting, and once they get into the city, what does he do, some grand uh, event, some big press conference? No. He walks up into the temple, and he looks around at everything, and then he leaves. He, he goes home. And what I told you last time is that all of that is very out of character for Jesus, if you'll recall. I mean, can you think of another instance of him riding anywhere else in the Gospels? No, apart from being in a boat, he's always walking. But this time he rides in on a very specific animal, an animal that would be fitting for a king. Uh, typically when people try to draw attention to his messiahship, did he allow that? Did he encourage that? No. He typically told them to be quiet, don't tell anyone, and this time, though, he's basically allowing a riot to break out as he comes into the city. Uh, Typically, he tries to avoid confrontation with the religious leaders. I mean, he doesn't shy away from it if they bring it to him, but he hasn't been active in going out and finding the priests and the scribes, trying to argue with them, and yet this time... He brings this entire processional right through their back door, literally, right into the temple complex. It's a, it's a very unusual scene. And what I told you last time is that I believe his time having finally come, Jesus isn't simply wanting to enter the city. He's wanting to make a statement. He's wanting to make a very clear and it seems to me that all the details that are given in that scene are designed to draw our attention to the fact that the king, that the Messiah, the one that Israel claims to have been waiting for all this time, has finally come. And so he made his entrance, he observed his temple, kind of a very regal uh, uh, thing to do as he walks in and just observes, looks around, and then he goes out for the night to get ready for the events of the next day. Verse 12 is the beginning of this next day. And so what would you expect the first act of the new king to be? You know, what what regal decision would you expect him to make? What royal edict would you expect the new king to proclaim? Well, as you see here in verses 12 to 14, the first act of the new king, the first act of this coming Messiah is to curse a fig tree for not having figs on it during the time of the year when it's not supposed to have figs on it. Now, you're chuckling, but just, but just look at what Mark tells us about this scene. He, he says they're on their way back into Jerusalem from Bethany. That's where they went out to spend the night, probably at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, I would assume that the text doesn't say, but that's where I think they probably go. And as they're way, making their way back you know, through the morning commute into Jerusalem, Jesus is hungry. He wants some breakfast, and he sees this fig tree off in the distance, Mark tells us here, and it's covered in leaves. And so he goes to see if there's anything on it, but when he comes to it, he doesn't find anything on it but leaves because, as Mark is very careful to point out, he's drawing our attention to it, it's not the season for figs, okay? So there's nothing on it but but leaves. And so then Jesus says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again ever. Curse. Pronounces a curse on it. And then Mark draws our attention to one more thing. The disciples heard this statement. Is, is anyone confused by that story? Let, let me help your confusion. If you're not confused, I'll make sure you are. Let me help your confusion by drawing out a few of the questions that should be going through your mind right about now, okay? So, First of all, on more than one occasion, we've seen Jesus uh, demonstrate the ability to effectively read people's minds and hearts, right? To know exactly what they're thinking or feeling in various situations and to tell them what they're thinking or feeling and everyone around them, right? So we've seen this multiple times, and yet he can't read a fig tree to know whether or not it has figs or even to know whether or not it's the time for figs. Secondly, Mark tells us he's hungry, right? That's the reason he goes to the fig tree, according to Mark. Well, we've seen him on two occasions produce food for thousands of people. So much so uh, and yet, excuse me, and yet here he's dependent on this fig tree to feed him. So much so that when it when it doesn't feed him, he feels justified in pronouncing a curse on it. Number 3, on that note, does anyone feel bad for the tree in the story? All right, because it's it's innocent. I mean, Jesus comes across as being a little petty and vindictive in this story. Is, is, is he frustrated with the tree when the tree didn't do anything wrong? And if so, then why? And then finally, why is this the first act of the new king? You know, I expected more or I expected better. Why is this the first thing that he does as the announced Messiah? Of Israel. Okay, does everyone now see the problem with the, with the story if you didn't see it before? I want to make sure you, it was very, very clear. Do you understand what I mean when I say the story just doesn't seem to fit? Well, l- let me begin to help you deal with some of your confusion by asking you one more question. Are these verses, verses 12 to 14, the only verses that that we see or hear about this fig tree? Okay, shake your head no. No, okay? It's not, because if you jump down to verse 20, you'll see that on the next day, as they're going back into the city again, so they're going to do some stuff that day, he's going to go back out to Bethany's next day, okay? Third day here. They're going back into the city, they pass by the fig tree again, and they see that the fig tree has withered away to its roots. In other words, it's gone, it's dried up basically to nothing, and if you're like me and like to plant things, you've probably experienced the same thing before, okay? So normally that takes time, to wither away like this. This is, this is miraculous for something like that to occur to a tree in just one night. And Peter sees it and he shows it to Jesus and, and then Jesus is going to use it as a teaching moment. But let me just point out that all of this, um, what seems to be the rest of the story of the fig tree, doesn't occur until verse 20, right? The first part of the story of the fig tree ended in verse 14. The second part begins in verse 20. And in between those two parts... There's a completely separate story, right? A completely different scene there in the middle. Does that sound familiar to any of you who have been studying through Mark with me now for the past few months? Do you, does anyone remember the word? I'm going to be really proud and impressed of you if you remember the word. Does anyone remember the word that we use to refer to this technique? Oh, I feel like a good teacher. Thank you so much. All right. Yes, I actually don't, but let's just go with it. I'm just happy you remember. Let me put an old slide up here to help those of you maybe who haven't been here long enough to, to know what's going on. This word intercalation is a word that refers to a very specific rhetorical or literary technique where an author or speaker does a very specific thing with two stories to make a point. They begin telling one story. We'll call it story A for the moment. They begin telling one story up to a certain point, whatever point they think is right. Then they pause that story and insert a completely separate story, story B in this case. Tell that story in its completion before coming back and finishing story A. It's it's a device that's that's used to to make a specific point, because even though the two stories may seem unrelated, by putting them together in this particular manner, the author or the speaker is showing you that there's something about one story that helps you understand the other story. In other words, you can't break them up. You, you, You can't separate them, because if you do, you miss the point of both stories. There's no way to divide them at all because they're really just one story, not two. Even though they really look like two, they're not. They're one. And so that's what Mark is doing here. He's done this several times before. We haven't seen it in a while, but we're back to it now. This is, a, this is an intercalation. And so to understand what's going on with the whole, I think it would be helpful to begin by looking at the story in between, okay? Story B, before we come back to story A and put the two Together. So let's go to Mark chapter 11, verse 15 here. Mark tells us a story that many of you will know very well as the story of Jesus doing what to the temple? Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, I don't know where that word or concept originally came from, but whoever first said it was apparently very uh, influential because that word cleansing has attached itself to this scene in many people's minds. And it it carries certain connotations with it that are, please note this, completely inaccurate. In fact, I'm going to argue that from this day forward, you should never again refer to this scene as Jesus cleansing the temple because cleansing is completely wrong. So let's just remove that word from our minds for a few minutes and try to look at this passage with with fresh eyes. Verse 15 picks up right after the fig tree incident as they're coming into Jerusalem, and specifically they're coming back into the temple complex. And when Jesus enters the temple, Mark says, he does two specific things, though nobody ever talks about the second thing he does. I guarantee you, you probably wouldn't even be able to name it if I didn't have it on the screen. It's not on this particular slide, but if you didn't look back at your Bible, I don't know if you would even know what it was. He does two very specific things. First, he temporarily disrupts the financial transactions that were a normal part of temple worship. Okay, did you catch that? He temporarily disrupts the financial transactions that were a normal part of temple worship. Now, you know this, but you don't know this. So before looking at what Jesus does, let me just give you some cultural context that I think will greatly help your understanding. As you can see here, in the temple complex, there is a, an area of sorts for business there within, the, within the, temple, the temple mount. They're on the temple mount. And just so you know, this isn't a bad thing. In fact, if I had time this morning, I'm pretty sure that I can make a biblical case for why this is a great thing a good thing. I could defend this. And you're like, wait, that's that, that's the problem though, right? We all know that because that's what you've been told your whole life. No, I could defend that this is totally biblical and good and fine. However, we don't have time for that. But I will quickly point out two requirements that every Jewish worshiper who came to the temple had to fulfill before we look at what Jesus does here, just so you can understand what's going on. First, it was required of every Jewish person, probably more accurate to say family, but I'll just say person, that they give a mandatory offering to God when they came before him to worship. And this offering was intended just to maintain the normal daily functions of the temple as the temple served the whole nation, the people, on their behalf before God. The, the, the sacrifices and the priests and all that stuff, basically, it's kind of like a tax. I mean, it's not really a tax, it's a it's a gift, But but it's close enough for our purposes this morning. Everyone's supposed to make this contribution, however... The problem in this day, practically speaking, is not everybody uses the same, uh, the same currency. I mean, we've, we just take for granted that wherever you go in America, you can use a dollar. That's not the case here. Every town, every city, every region might have their own currency. And so how do you know as a worshiper that you're giving the right amount of, of tax, of, of gift to the temple? Well, it's hard to keep up with. And so what they had were an exchange station, money changers, sitting at tables. So you would come up to them with whatever currency you had in your area, and we'd give it to them, and they would exchange it for a special temple currency. They had made their own currency to make sure that you could give the right amount. It was designed to help you, to help you obey God's law for, for these worshipers who want to do that. So these are the money changers. Second, if you're a worshiper coming to the temple, you're not coming as a tourist. You're not coming just to look around and you like stay in the hotel and get your hair done kind of thing. I mean, it's, You're coming to worship. And coming to worship God means that you're going to come and present a sacrifice to God on the altar. In other words, you're going to give a bull or a lamb or a pigeon or something to the priest who's going to kill it for you and sacrifice it to God on your behalf. But, but if you've had to travel any distance, you, you didn't bring an animal with you. Moses himself says don't bring an animal with you. Just buy it when you get there. And so there are people there who are set up selling animals for you to purchase, to, to facilitate your worship, to make it easier for you to, to obey what, what God has, has done. So these are the, the buyers and the sellers that Mark mentions here in the temple, the people buying sacrifices, the people selling the animals. These are the pigeon sellers. What you're seeing here in verse 15 is nothing unusual or sinister. I don't care what you've been told in the past. I'm telling you, it is nothing unusual or sinister. These are just the normal activities that would be required in order for the people of God to worship at the temple of God. It's not just commerce. This is worship facilitating commerce. Make that distinction. And the first thing that Jesus does when he gets into the temple is he disrupts this he he drives out note very specifically everyone who is both buying and selling and i really want you to notice that he drives out the buyers not just the sellers, because of how we've been taught, we tend to think that he's angry with the, with the sellers, which I'll address more in a moment. But, but for now, notice that he drives both of them out. Basically, he's driving everyone out of that area. He overturns the tables of the money changers, as well as the seats of the pigeon sellers. So just for a moment, he brings all of that worship-facilitating commerce to a halt. Second, normally ignored by almost everyone when we talk or think about this scene, he forbids anyone from carrying anything through the temple. And I know that your first temptation when you read that is to say, uh, so what? But this is as equally big as the first point. You see, the temple is a, it's a bustling place of worship. We're, we're a little bit handicapped here because we don't understand the temple. We don't understand the temple system. So when we read this, we don't get it. Mark's readers would have gotten it instantly. The temple is a bustling place of worship. There are hundreds of priests on duty, maybe thousands, maybe by the time you add in all of the helpers and the porters and all the things that are associated, all the other people associated with the temple employment. But there's hundreds of priests on duty serving thousands of worshipers. There are literally thousands of sacrifices being made each day. Think of all the incense that needs to be burned at specific times. Think of all the prayers that need to be said at specific times. Think of all the songs that need to be sung. And think of all the supplies that are needed to facilitate all of this. I mean, not only are you talking about all the animals and the incense, but but all the uh, utensils that go with all of that stuff, everything that's prescribed by the Old Testament law. Uh, From all accounts of the time, the temple was an extremely organized, efficient center of worship. Each priest, each helper had a specific job to be carried out in a specific way so that things would move smoothly. And all of a sudden here, Jesus disrupts that he refuses to allow anyone to carry anything through the temple at least the part that he's in this isn't going to primarily affect the average worshipper who's visiting that day this is primarily going to affect the the priests and those employed in temple worship activities if the incense doesn't show up at the right time then they can't make the offerings and prayers that they're supposed to make if the priest don't uh, the excuse me the animals don't make it to the altar then The priests can't sacrifice the way they're supposed to sacrifice. And so, do you see why this is as equally big as the first one? By doing these two things, Jesus has, just for a moment, it's just for a moment, he has brought the entire worship in the temple to a screeching halt. And the question that should be going through your mind here is, why? Well, Mark gives us just a taste just a taste. I think there's probably much more said than what Mark records, but he gives us just a taste of Jesus's teaching during the scene. As he's doing all of this, he's teaching them, the people in the temple, the chief pri- the priests, the helpers, whoever, he's teaching them, saying to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, you and I, not being as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be, don't recognize that this isn't a single quote. This is actually a combination of two different quotes being put together. The first part, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, comes from Isaiah 56.7. If you like to take notes, that's a good one to make. Um, and it's referencing the fact that God did not intend his temple to be a national shrine for Israel. He just didn't, and we don't have the time to read the entire uh, entirety of Isaiah 56. We're actually not going to read any of it. I would love for you to do it later, but the first part of Isaiah 56 is specifically talking about how God will accept the outcast and the foreigners, as opposed, you know, to the children of Israel. He'll accept the outcast and the foreigners who genuinely worship Him. He talks about specific groups of outcasts who normally would not be allowed to come into his house to worship and how he will welcome them in while his own people won't, won't be allowed. He talks about foreigners who will be welcomed to come in. They'll be welcomed to his holy mountain and into his house, both references to the temple. Thus, in verse 7, when he gets to that point, God proclaims that his house is going to be a house of prayer for all the peoples, not just Israel. This, in case you're not aware, is not how most Jews in Jesus' day view the temple. They viewed it as being for them, for them only as if God only loved them and as if only they had true access to God. And so this reference to Isaiah 56 is very different than what the average Jew of Jesus' day thought and felt. The second part of his quote, but you have made it into a den of robbers, is more of a paraphrase than a quote. It's It's kind of a paraphrase of a thought in Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 8 through 11. And if you want to turn there, go ahead. I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you want to see it for yourself, do so. Jeremiah 7, this phrase is is where a lot of our wrong thinking about this passage comes from, because we see this quote, that you've turned it into a den of robbers, and we tend to focus on the word robbers. And we think then that the problem that Jesus is addressing has something to do with the financial transactions that are occurring. Um, as if the people are being cheated, and that's kind of the big deal. They're trying to make money off of God's people, da 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 this is the problem. Well, if that's the problem, then why stop people from carrying things through the temple? I mean, how does stopping people from carrying things through the temple address the financial problems that might be going on at the money changers' table? It doesn't. If that's the problem, why does he also drive out the buyers? Because they're the victims, right? If that's the problem see it doesn't it doesn't work, even if you try to make sense of that idea within the context it doesn't it doesn't work. We focus on the word robbers and that tends to lead us astray. Let me draw your attention to a different word and see if this helps you at all. I want you to notice the word den den of robbers. And as you notice it, let me ask you a very simple question that one of the commentators I was reading when I was studying through this, asked, and I had never thought of this before. And when he asked it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's obvious. Here was the question. Where do robbers do their robbing? Do they do, they do it out there or in their dens? I and mean, just think about it for a minute, okay? Robbers always rob out there, and then they bring the things they steal back to their dens, right? They rob out there and then they retreat to their dens for for safety. The den is their stronghold, their place of, of solace and safety. And Jesus is saying to all of these people, buyers and sellers alike, everyone that's there, that they have turned the temple of God into a place where evildoers find safety. Think about that. This is his accusation. And to prove this to you, to show you, let's see it for ourselves here in Jeremiah chapter 7. We're going to read verses 8, uh, I think, to 11. Yeah, 8 to 11, and then we'll jump ahead just a little bit. Here in verse 8, God is speaking through Jeremiah the prophet. He says, behold, he's speaking to Israel. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, in case it's not clear, these are all really bad things that he's accusing the people of Israel of doing. Will you do all of these things, he asks, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? See, this is the problem for Jeremiah, the people are performing all kinds of acts of wickedness, disobedience to God, abominations, and then feel that they can just simply come back to the temple and do the things that they're supposed to do that God has called them to do, and all of a sudden we're safe, only to go right back out and do them again. And so therefore, God asks this question, has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He's saying that's what you've turned it into, a place where you evildoers can run for safety. He goes on then, and we are I'm not reading all of this part, he goes on to, to tell them to look at Shiloh. That's the first location where the tabernacle was placed after it made it into the land. He tells them to go see what, they, what he did to that place because of the wickedness of the people. And since you and I may not be as familiar with what he did, He destroyed it. He says, Go look at it. They would have known what he did. Go look at it. And after he says all of that, he says to them, And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and on the next page, and in which you trust and into the place which I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, this is way bigger than Jesus simply being upset about some supposed financial misdoings. This here, Jeremiah 7, that reference, is specifically a statement about God destroying the temple, and casting out his people because of their wickedness and their rejection of him. This is way bigger than most of us have ever thought about this passage. Way, way bigger. But while you and I may not have understood that reference and what it was implying correctly, uh, the priests (laughs) and the people did. Mark tells us that when the chief priests and the scribes hear this, they were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him. You don't just fear someone who's trying to reform things. He's coming in pronouncing God's judgment. They they are fearing him. The crowds also respond. They are astonished at his teaching, and that's not necessarily a good thing. We think of the word astonished as like, oh, they're really excited about it. It's a good thing. No, 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 no. It simply means that they don't know what to think. They're like, like that. Okay, that's the response of astonished. Like, I don't know what to say. That's just going on. But they're sure paying attention to him. They are paying attention to him, and then when evening come, he comes, he goes back out to, uh, back out of the city. Folks, Jesus, Jesus isn't cleansing anything here. Why would he cleanse something that he's pronouncing destruction on? He's going to pronounce destruction on it more specifically in chapter 13. So why cleanse or try to reform something that you're saying is going to be gone soon? He's not trying to cleanse the te- uh, temple. As soon as he's done with this display that we see unfolded here, th- the people, no doubt, just cleaned everything up and put it all back and picked up activities as normal. This, this isn't about cleansing. This is about a proclamation of destruction, a proclamation of judgment on both the temple and its worship by Jesus. Just as Jesus stops the worship of the temple there for a moment, God is about to end all worship in the temple forever. Forever. Spiritually, he's going to do that through the sacrifice of Jesus. We'll mention that at the end. Literally, within just a few years, by the, de- the destruction of the Romans, they're going to come in and destroy this place and end everything. It's going to be ended to this day. And the reason why he's pouring out this judgment on his, in his people is because they have perverted both the place and the, the original purpose of what was supposed to occur there. It was supposed to have been a house of prayer for all peoples. A, a place where all the peoples of the earth could come to to know the one true God. Instead, the people of Israel have made it into a national shrine, shrine just for them, as if God only loves them and only wants to have a relationship with them. Not only that, but they've come to believe that their righteousness before God was guaranteed by this place and what happens there. I mean, we can live however we want, right? As long as we go and we make the sacrifices and do what we're supposed to do and check all the boxes, no heart change is needed, no life change is needed. Just, just make sure you're a good religious Jew. Do the things you have to do, and you're good. It was never the purpose of the temple. It was never the purpose of the sacrificial system. As David said in Psalm 51, as he was praying to God for forgiveness over his sin with Bathsheba, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. God doesn't want dead, burnt animals. That was never the point. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David gets it. He understood what the real purpose of all of that stuff was. It was never about the sacrifices. It was always about the heart. And unfortunately, the hearts of the people of Israel are far away from the from god he's not cleansing this temple folks he's pronouncing god's judgment on it now can you understand the story of the fig tree better see someone has called this and i think it's the best the best way of of understanding it someone has called this an acted out parable okay so jesus has told parables, stories that make a point right this is an acted out parable so so the fig tree gives the appearance of having life does it not It's full of leaves Mark points out and yet there's no fruit and Jesus was never expecting fruit on the fig tree he knew it wasn't the season but it's a picture it's a, a fruit tree full of leaves but no fruit and because there's no fruit what does he do he judges it and when God pronounces judgment on something judgment comes it's certain overnight the fig tree dies, it withers away to the roots, and now, now that this judgment has been pronounced on the fig tree that looked like it had life but had no fruit, Jesus draws our attention to three very specific points of emphasis. Notice how this is all woven together. First, he draws our attention to the importance of genuine faith. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, most likely said, pointing at Mount Zion, the temple mount, okay, the one they're standing right in front of, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I remember um, reading this as a child, thinking that it was some mysterious statement on how you could get superpowers, basically, you know? I would, i remember specifically. I was asking Jamie this morning if she ever did this, and she says she can't remember doing it. So it's just me. I remember trying as a kid to like specifically move something by faith. So I'm like, mm. <laughs> I look like Professor Xavier having a migraine. And I'm like, mm, like, trying to get it to 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 move, right? I, I was Pentecostal at the time, so back off. Um, <laughs> this isn't that, okay? What I was doing as a kid, how I was reading, it was totally misunderstanding the point of what Jesus is saying. I would ask you this morning to try to hear this with the disciples' ears, because what is Mount Zion? What specifically? It's, it's the holiest place on earth. It's, it's the physical location where God dwells with his people. It's the source of Israel's pride and power, and yet Jesus is telling his disciples that genuine faith is more powerful than that mountain? Whoa, 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 whoa. No, what? Like, they must have been shocked to hear such a thing. Such a statement would have been shocking not only to them, but also to Mark's early readers. Genuine faith trumps the Temple Mount. Second, he draws our attention to genuine prayer here in verse 24. He's, and remember, prayer is supposed to be a uh, both an act of declaring our dependence on God as, as well as a way of uh, declaring our desire to commune with God. So prayer then is really based on genuine faith. And he says here that a prayer that's filled with a genuine recognition, recognition of the need for forgiveness, both from God and towards others, is, is what God is really seeking. Third, and I'm going through this very quickly, he draws our attention to genuine forgiveness there in verse 25, that we have a genuine need of it, real forgiveness, true forgiveness, that, that we have sinned against God and that we feel conviction and contrition and repentance over those sins, and that in turn we not only are in need of God's mercy and grace, but that we are in need of showing it to others as well. Why these three specific things? Well, think about them in relation to the temple and in relation to temple worship, and I think it'll become very clear. Weren't true worshipers of God supposed to come because of their genuine faith in the one true God? Um, Not out of some cultural tradition or obligation or simply because it fulfilled some personal need. Uh, Weren't true worshipers supposed to truly recognize their dependence on God and desire to truly commune with him, to be in his presence, not just to pray prayers out of, again, some cultural tradition or obligation or simply because it fulfilled a personal need? Weren't the true worshippers supposed to be there to express their genuine repentance over their sins and to seek God's forgiveness as outwardly demonstrated by the whole sacrificial system? The the sacrifices were never taking away their sins, by the way. It was the contrition of their hearts that were doing that. But a lot of them are there out of just, again, some cultural tradition or obligation simply because it fulfilled some personal need so that they could go on living their lives the way they really wanted to in the first place. See, these three points of emphasis aren't random. (laughs) Not at all. Jesus is proclaiming the failure of God's people to approach, worship, and know God as he desired. And so he announces the end of the old system even as he walks day by day towards the inauguration of the new. Folks, this, this passage should serve as both a warning and an encouragement to us. It's a warning because I think for many In our day, this is timeless. (laughs) The cross, the gospel, Christianity has become a, a, a den of robbers just like the temple was for the Jews. As long as you say the right prayer and you believe the right facts and you do the right things, you're good, right? Heaven's assured. And yet there's no genuine change of heart or mind or life. None. You can call yourself your... You can call yourself a Christian until you're blue in the face. You can know all the right answers. Believe me, I did. You can do all the right things and still be one of those to whom the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. <laughs> we haven't moved away from the problem, even though the temple was destroyed. People, people uh, think that somehow Jesus like, died for their sins, that so they'd have a team to join and a jersey to wear. So when people ask, well, what team do you root for? I root for Team Jesus. So I'm going to heaven because I've got the, the <coughs> Jesus jersey on. No, he didn't. He died so that you could die to self and so that he could live through you. Jesus demands everything. He's not looking for people to take up his name and his cause. <laughs> he doesn't need us. We need him. There's a big difference there. Not so we can just go on living our lives. Folks, it's a warning. And so I would say to you, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves whether or not you truly are in the faith. It's a call to at least examine, to know where is our faith placed? Is there any evidence or fruit showing in our lives? Because the cross and the gospel and and Christianity and the church and Cornerstone and your family or whatever else, it can be just as much a den of robbers to you as anything else. Not only, though, is it a warning, I think it's an encouragement to, to pursue genuine faith and genuine prayer and genuine forgiveness as well. And all of this has been accomplished through the gospel. Only genuine faith in Christ's death and resurrections for our sins can can make us right with God. It's not just a, a mental ascent. It's when all of our faith has been placed in Jesus and Jesus alone. As I've said before, when we're not diversifying our faith, when we're all in with Christ, if we're wrong about Jesus, we're just wrong. We don't have any other option. Our faith is in him or it's in nothing. So, so only genuine faith in Christ's death can make us right with God. This only comes when you are truly uh, and genuinely dependent on God for salvation and for all of life. And, and that communion we have with God, the only reason God says to us that he now wants us to, excuse me, now wants to be our father, that he is our father, is because he sees us in his son. He's my Father because I'm in His Son. I'm tied back to Jesus and back to what He's done with me. My relationship with Him, my continued communion with the Father, comes only through the blood of Jesus. And all of this is possible only because God, in His great grace, mercy, and love for us, has forgiven us of our sins by placing our sins on His own Son and then pouring out all the wrath that was rightly ours on Him. So now I have nothing to fear from Him because... The wrath is gone. No more fear of judgment. As the song said, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. I I had nothing without him. I have nothing without him and I will have nothing without him. Genuine faith demonstrated in genuine prayer for, for genuine forgiveness is what God has always wanted from his people. And Jesus, the King, the Messiah, has come to reestablish those things amongst the true, genuine people of God. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, it is so easy for so many of us to read these words, to look at the Jews of Jesus' day and think, well, we're not like them. We... We don't want to just go out and live our lives how we want and then come back and check all the boxes and do the things that, that we're supposed to do, quote-unquote, and so that we can be forgiven just to go back out and do them again. We're not like that, but the reality is, is that so many of us are. There are so many people in this world who, on a survey, will claim to be Christians. They check that box as the team they root for, as the jersey they wear, but there is nothing real there. It is just leaves with no fruit. And there are some, no doubt, in this room who are under that same designation, just leaves, no fruit. And so I would ask, Lord, that you would reveal those things to the hearts of each and every person in here. Paul told us specifically to test ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. So such thinking, such questions, such such, uh, introspection is right. And I would pray that through that, perhaps, that your spirit would convict some of their need for genuine faith, Genuine dependence, genuine forgiveness, not just to go through the cultural motions because it's what makes them feel good. No, something real, something that actually shows itself in their lives. I pray though for those in here who are genuine believers, who are not running to the cross and to the gospel as, as a den of safety after their, their evil. Granted, we all sin, we get that, but, but those who have a genuine contrition over sin and would love to be more and more like you, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be truly dependent, to to have genuine faith that comes and finds its fulfillment, its fullness in you, that, that we will find our communion with the Father through you, Jesus, that we'll find our forgiveness and rejoice in our forgiveness and the fact that there is no wrath against us now because of you, that we will see you as the fullness of all in all in our lives. Remind us of that. You have reminded us of that this morning. I pray that it will become even more fresh and clear in our hearts. And so, Jesus, we thank you that that you have done these things for us on the cross. We ask that you continue to work in our hearts to reveal who we truly are in you so that as we go out and live our lives day to day, we're not hypocrites, We're we're not pretenders. We are just sinners saved by grace who need you every moment. Jesus, thank you for your word. Spirit, apply it to our hearts. We ask in your name.